0: Am I onish? Ooh, I'm onish. I'm more than onish. I'm loud and onish. So that's good. Looks like we got most folks. So we'll we'll most folks it. Um, good morning, everybody. I see a lot of familiar faces uh, from from history, past and present. Um, my name is Brad Wellock. I am one of the pastors at Redeeming Grace Church. And all of you here this morning need to know that that's because of the faithfulness of this church in past generations that I got to that place. Um, my family and I were part of the church for many years, uh, I think 2010 to 2015. Uh, and in 2015, this church very kindly pushed hands on Trav Newman and I and sent us up to Smithsburg to plant a new church uh, that I want to report is doing very, very well. Yep. When uh, when I got a text message, uh, group text from Albert on Friday night, um, you know he Trav and I, he's like, "Hey, you know, guys, um, it's not looking real good. Um, could I get some help?" And, and I, I, I kind of like, I, I had in my mind at that moment. If you've ever seen the uh, the third Lord of the Rings movie, when they light all the torches, and the re- messenger rushes in and says, "the the minister has called for help." help and Rohan will answer and I'm thinking yes RGC will answer we can do this this is something we can do to help Uh, so I am thrilled to be here this morning to be able to share a message with you Um, I I also just want to tell you how incredible uh, incredibly humble I appreciate Albert's example um, if you have not ever done pastoral ministry, it is very easy to be tempted to think that uh, I am the center of the universe, and if I don't come, then the church will fall apart and nothing will get done. Uh, and by his not being here this morning, I think he has demonstrated to all of you very clearly his humility uh, in first, serving his wife and his family, uh, and then second, in recognizing that God cares way more about his church than we ever will, and he takes care of it even when we're not here. Um, so I, I just want to uh, I want to commend your pastor to you. you know he's amazing, um, but from somebody outside in it might sound a little different. So grateful for him doing that uh, and, and demonstrating in that way. This morning, I have for you a message from the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Redeeming grace is working through expositionally the gospel of mark we started uh, I think we started Very beginning of the year. So we're 10 chapters in, and we're right about to take a break. Uh, We take a break every summer, and we do what we call our summer series, where we just pick topical messages, because we know in the summer everybody goes on vacation, and nobody's there two weeks in a row. So we're ready for that. We plan ahead. We know it's happening. And uh, this my message this morning is the last message that we did for... The spring season, and this morning, Trav is preaching at Redeeming Grace, the first first of our summer messages. So we're going to be in Mark, uh, the 10th chapter, the second half, verses 32 to 52, and I'd like to lead off with prayer if I could. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the amazing gift of your word. You have not left us without information. You have not left us with knowledge of you. We can see you in creation. We can see you moving amongst us. We can feel your presence, but Father, you have blessed us particularly with your word, your clear and abiding word that we can trust, we can rely on, we can study to know you better, and Father, this morning that we will cling to the words of your scripture that you would educate us, yes, but more importantly, Lord, that you would change us from the inside out. So, Father, this morning, I would ask that you send your spirit to particularly minister to each person here today, that as the words are spoken by a weak messenger, Lord, that you would bring strength, you would bring clarity, you would bring understanding to that person in the way that you have made them, in the cir- circumstances of life that you have brought them to, and that you would, Lord, give them peace. I pray this in Jesus' powerful, powerful name. Amen. All right. Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 32 to 52 is a lot of text. I'm not gonna read it all to you this morning because I would just crush us under story time. And nobody likes story time. So I think what we're going to do this morning instead is we're going to treat this big chunk of scripture more like a big Bible study. Is that okay? Can we do that? We're just going to roll verse by verse through this and we're going to see what the Lord would have for us and along the way we'll kind of build a picture of what God is getting at. Now I want to give you some background. As I say, my church was spoiled by this message and they got all the stuff up to it so they knew it was coming. So you get the flash upgrade. Chapters 8, 9, and 10 are some of the clearest teaching about discipleship in all of Scripture. And we know they're clear because the disciples got it and they instantly did it, right? No. no, they're an awful lot like us. I actually got to preach a whole message called Sometimes We Don't Get It. And it was based on the whole premise that the disciples just never really seemed to get it. And so you see in chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, three separate times... We go through the same cycle over again. Jesus will tell them what's going to happen to them. In their brilliance, they will make the most spectacularly stupid question to him. Where we're just like, really guys? That's the best you had? And then Jesus will come back behind that and give them a clear example of what he means, right? You guys missed it, but here's really what this looks like. And this is what you're supposed to take away from it. Chapter 10 specifically starts out with discipleship teaching on marriage and divorce. We paused and took two weeks to run through this because the topic is something that is so prevalent in our society and so impacts many in the church that we really felt that that needed an additional time where we could just really, really pull in more of Scripture and help folks understand that. The next section is Jesus, the little children come to Jesus. What a fabulous story. Um, Somehow I got to do that one because I have like a million kids. Um, And it worked out really well because uh, a key tenet in the middle of that is it really kind of gets to the heart of uh, children that die. If you've ever experienced that, um, my wife and I have experienced that. And so the message just really flows out of there, and you get a real good understanding of the heart of Jesus when he says, No, no, do not stop them. You let the little children come to me. They belong in my kingdom. And then after that, we get the story of the rich young ruler. He comes with all of his law and all of his trappings and all of his stuff and pulls his U-Haul up in front of Jesus and says, I did all this stuff and I've got all this stuff. How do I get into heaven? And like, <laughs> you, you missed the point, friend. That's not where this is going. Um, and that's what sets the table. That's where it sets us up this morning for the rest of this. And we have probably about four sections. And so what we're going to do, just like that, that cycle we talked about, we're going to cover first the prophecy. Then we're going to cover the response. This is the bonehead question that the disciples will ask. And don't think too much poorly of them, because you know every time Scripture says disciples, that's us too. Um, we will see Jesus' response, and then we will see his example. He gives us a really, really rich example of what he wants to do with that. All right, if you have your Bibles, we'll start, Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, we'll start in verse 32. mm mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who follow him were afraid. The story begins with a description of on the way. Jesus and his disciples are still in Perea, but they're on the way to Jerusalem to attend the Passover. At the end of chapter 10, we kind of, this, we've had all this momentum, we've had all this teaching, we're so excited, but by the time we get to the end of chapter 10, we've kind of run out of momentum. And when you start chapter 11, we're now on the very slow march to cavalry. So at this moment, they are together. They are beginning to make that journey. Like most Jewish folks at that time, they are making the, this travel. It's probably spring, April. If you really want to like put it on your calendar, it's probably a Thursday. And they're doing this. They're getting ready to go. They're making this trek. And it, it says they are headed to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city of peace. Yet interestingly enough, it's been a scene of continuing war dating all the way back to the book of Judges. 17 times besieged, twice raised to the ground. This is where Jesus is going for the penultimate act of his life. The center of the Jewish world and the center for the entire rest of the book of Mark. It says Jesus went before them. Now even now, coming to this most difficult part of his redemptive plan, In Luke's version of this telling, he says, His face was set. This is language like Isaiah 50. But the Lord God helped me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know I shall not be put to shame. Jesus remains steadfast and resolute. He was aware of his impending death, but presses now to the fore, leading the troops in battle. The poet Cowper writes, The Savior, what a noble flame, was kindled in his breast. When hastening to Jerusalem, he'd march before the rest. And the disciples, they followed, but they were afraid. Literally, that word means terror struck. They were afraid for their own safety, yes. But Jesus was marching to Jerusalem, and in their mind, they were still unclear what would happen there. Remember, they wanted a political hero. They wanted someone who would come and rescue them from the evil, wicked, mean, bad, and nasty Romans who were ruining their perfect little Jerusalem. And so is Jesus now coming? Is he, is he finally coming to overthrow the government? And are they going to have to take up positions in battle? Will this actually be a physical war that's going to happen? And uh, misguided, but it had already happened once before. They saw it with the Maccabees. And so now the question is, okay, what's going to happen to us? We're doing this. He's kind of locked in on this now. The disciples are getting nervous. And it says, And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what would happen to him. This is the third prediction in Mark, and it's the most precise. Jesus now cuts past all the clutter, and he gets real, real clear with them. This is what's going to happen when we get there. Verse 33. 33. He says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Jesus does not mix words with them this time. There's no illusions, there's no guessing. He's very, very clear. He uses eight future tense verbs implying complete certainty about what's going to happen when he gets there. But so now when you put this section together, you see Jesus marching before them. He knows what's going to happen. They are scared and so what is his response? How does he come and comfort them? Does he come with a pat on the back and say, "Yo, oh, guys, you know, it's gonna be bad for me but it's gonna be okay for you? No, that's not what he brings. He brings them a clear promise of what's going to happen. Not only is it so certain that it's going to happen, but he is going to be the one that leads them forward. He, them like us, he has never promised to take us around the storm, right? Earlier in Mark, we do storms twice. It's a big theme in this. We do one where they're out on the water and Jesus is sleeping in the boat and a huge storm comes and they're freaking out. And He wake him up and he's like, what did you guys think was happening? I'm with you. And the second time, they're out on the water, and he's not with them, and they're freaking out, and he comes walking on the water to them, gets in the boat, and the storm stops. At no point does he say, I'm going to stand over here, and you guys do your junk, and when it gets really, I'll be here cheering for you, and I hope it's okay. No, that's not what he says, and that's not what he says here. We're going to do, I'm going to be with you every step of the way. And so when we encounter suffering, we do not have to look around and try to figure out where Jesus is. He has told us over and over again, we know where he will be. He will be in front of us, leading us through it. Jesus is the one who leads his people through both suffering and triumph. His clear prediction here is meant, not meant to scare the disciples, but instead to calm them. Give them confidence, knowing that he will go before them. Deuteronomy 31.6 says, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear and be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. His whole point of going to the cross wasn't to leave them. It wasn't to forsake them. Instead, it was to be with them forever. That was the point. And this morning, that's the point for us as well. He is with us, right? As we look at this passage and we try to figure out where is Jesus going with this? What is the purpose? Does this tie to my purpose somehow? He's with us. His purpose and our purposes are locked at the hip. And knowing that he has gone before us and that he has promised to be with us, we can move forward with confidence, strong and courageous. So now let's turn our attention to the disciples' request. Actually, in this section, there is one request and multiple responses, so we get the additional benefit for us here today. Verse 35, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now that just sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? And what's even more ridiculous, okay, so this is ridiculous on a couple levels. First of all, okay, if you read this tel- the story in Matthew, the disciples themselves weren't even the ones that asked. Salome asked. Quick family genetic lesson here. Salome was Mary's sister, making it Jesus' aunt. So James and John were his cousins. It was so ridiculous that they couldn't ask themselves. They had to go get their mommy to do it for them. That's sad, guys. Come on. you got to get your mommy. That's bad. But even more so, right, he just told them in the preceding verse what was going to happen to him. How do you ask that question in the context of they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him? I don't get it. And the commentators don't either. The best they can come up with is that these guys figured out that, you know, okay, this might be real and we might be coming to the end and I better get my question in now, just in case. That's the best we have. But it, it just, how could you bring that in light of it? And, and I, when I sat down to write this message, I was just deeply convicted because I do the same thing. i read this same verse and then the rest of my prayers all sound like, Jesus, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. I need all these things. It's ridiculous, but we do it too. We read the same passages about sacrifice and we go right back to our small problems and ask specifically that he solve them in the way we want them to be solved. I hope Jesus is patient with them because I hope he's patient with me. Verse 36, and he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Oh, the patience of Jesus unbelievable patience with his cousins. I am so glad he is patient with me and with us when we ask questions like this. Verse 37, And they said to him, Grant to us sit one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. Okay, so what are they asking for? They are asking for seats of position or influence. Again, in their brain, they're still kind of thinking, okay, we're going to go to some kind of battle. And in the end, there's going to have to be like a first lieutenant and a second lieutenant. And we, we want these positions of, of, of priority amongst others. And guys, come on. No, he's about to die. And you want special seats? No, no, no. What makes this crazier is that also in Matthew, just a few verses before this, he has already told the 12 that there will be special thrones for them in heaven. He's already cleared this up for them. So they know they're going to have a special seat there, but, 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 they want front court seats. They want to sit right next to the star. And it's crazy. He already has a place beside them. Okay, so surely Jesus is going to smack them now, right? This is, this is, he's got to do it. Verse 38. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, if somebody asks you a question in answer to your question, you know you've probably missed the boat, right? This has happened to all of us. You ask the question and they re- respond with a question. You're like, oh, no, no, no. You were just supposed to say, yes, that was the right answer. No, 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 that's, that's not what he does. Jesus responds with a question and, and actually, frankly, it's rhetorical. Now, in Jewish tradition, the cup, the cup would symbolize either joy or wrath. In the context here, clearly, in the march to Calvary, Jesus is clearly speaking of divine punishment for sin. Jeremiah 25:15 says, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. The cup was his destiny. It was part of why he came and why he would die. And the baptism, this is the picture of the overwhelming suffering and death that would happen to him. Psalm 88, seven, your wrath lies heavy upon me and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Jesus responds with a picture of the type of suffering that he will endure and that they must to follow him. And the disciples answer again in verse 39, oh, oh, so foolishly. And they said to him, we're able, Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, we can do it. We could totally do this. They still have in their head that this is going to be a physical battle along political, military, King Jesus. The warriors are ready for glory, misguided, and self-reliant. Denny Aiken notes that their request reveals three things. First, their superficial understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. Second, their inflated opinion of their own importance. And third, their wrongheadedness on how God truly measures greatness. So now Jesus will answer them clearly. How are we to respond to this? What really is greatness in his eyes? It says, And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. You fellas will experience it. We will experience it. In their specific case, James was the first disciple to be martyred, and John suffers persecution the entire rest of his life. They will experience suffering and death, but it won't be alongside political King Jesus. It will be for risen, reigning, and ruling King Jesus. Verse 41, and when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Now, obviously, the fellows wanted this to be kind of quiet, They didn't want everybody else to know. And this is a pro tip. If you have to do something where nobody else knows about it, you're probably doing the wrong thing. Especially if you have to get your mommy to ask. (laughs) We are children of light, and our ways and our actions are to be light. But not only did they get shot down, but now the others found out. This is the same word of how indignant Jesus was a few passages back when they tried to keep the children away from him. It was just this idea of indignance. This just doesn't fit. This is not how it is. You guys are heading in a completely wrong direction. And while it seems paradoxical, the more we focus on ourselves, the more other people are hurt by it. Now in their bickering, Jesus calls the kids together again and sits them down. Verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whomever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. So, you fellas, you want fancy seats of power and respect. You need to know very clearly now, that's not how it works in my kingdom. Remember all the other lessons that I've already taught you. Mark chapter 8, 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Mark 9, 35. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Apparently not, and so he's giving it to them again. You guys want to be something big. You want to be a big deal in my kingdom? Here's what that looks like. You eat last, if at all. You care for the poor. You give sacrificially. You serve freely. You defend the orphan. You embrace the herding. Servants and slaves are two of the lowest stations in Jewish society. My kingdom, Jesus says, is complete backwards of what you're thinking. If you want a place of recognition in my kingdom, your life, perhaps your entire purpose in life, better be marked by the greatness of your humility and your devotedness to the service of others. And now, if that's not clear enough, Jesus goes on to show his leadership by an example. He unfolds even more of his purpose for us. Verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The obvious but yet stated question of the disciples would be, Jesus, how far should we go? Right? This whole serving thing, how, how, how far do we go with that? His example is to go so far as to offer up even his very life. And not just for good deeds sake, but as a ransom. This verse, verse 45, is so rich that we're, we're gonna have to pick it apart almost word for word. There's so much goodness in here. So verse 45, the four, The preposition at the beginning here reinfor- reinforces the idea of substitution. This is in place of or instead of. His purpose in this act is substitutionary. He is doing something in place of someone else. It says, for even the Son of Man. This is the Messiah prophesying Daniel who would come to redeem his people. Not to be served, but to serve. This follows all through the book of Isaiah when we think about the suffering servant. That's the model that's been framed in our Old Testament, and now Jesus is coming to fulfill it clearly in the New. To give his life, it says, not grudgingly, not by compulsion. Hebrews 12, 2 says he's giving it joyfully. The most extreme way you could ever possibly serve someone. And he's giving it as a ransom. Now, we know this word from like TV shows now where there's kidnappers and great hijinks. This is not that. For the disciples in, in that first century, what they're hearing is you're buying someone back. You're getting someone out of slavery or prison or or even someone who has deserved death. So imagine you have broken a law, you have gone to court, you have justifiably been convicted. Yep, and the penalty for that conviction is death. But, but, I come and I pay a price. I give a certain amount of money or I give something and you are set free. You no longer have to die for that. Well, we need to be real clear with ourselves this morning. That's us. You and I deserve death. Scripture is very clear on this. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Does all miss anyone in this room today? No, it's all of us. And it's all of everybody out there too. It's all. All is all. Okay, so we have committed an infraction against the law. What do we get for that? What's our conviction? That's 623, for the wages of sin, which we earned, is death. You and I deserve death. But Jesus is going to pay the ultimate price, and in doing so, he is going to set you, me, and many free. Because Romans 623 continues and says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This passage so clearly declares our salvation, earned through Christ, We deserve death. But Jesus chose to serve us in the fullest extreme, dying in our place. And God the Father accepted Christ's offering. And now we are set free from the penalty of death and granted access to eternal life. And God will set places for us in heaven. We don't have to go seeking those. God has appropriated those places for us. So our purpose here now is tied up in Jesus' purpose then. He came as leader, model, example, oh yes. But so much more, he came as sacrifice, the ransom for many. What an incredible picture of what God has done for us. Grace is a gift, it's the ultimate gift. And for the gift that remains available to those who place their faith in Christ to receive it. And now in our passage, he shows us an example of what that looks like in practical application. You and I are probably aren't going to be called to go die on a cross in our life. So he gives us a really practical story. Thank God for practical stories. Verses 46 to 52. This is the healing of the blind man, Bartimaeus. Now, this may be a spirit-led observation or it may have been far too much caffeine in my prep. But I love how affected Mark is in writing this. So you know, this, everything we have in our Bible was written by somebody. Their hand put ink to paper, and they wrote this. And they're real people. And so we get to see the real people in the passage. And I know Mark. So Mark just finished writing this. He's got his pen out, and he's writing. And he just finished verse 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many and he is just blown away by this. And you say, Brad, how do I know that? Because in the next preceding story, he uses the word and 16 times. Have you ever had a child come to you who is pumped up on Pepsi, and they just had the most exciting thing in their life that's ever happened to you? How do they tell you a story? And this happened, and this happened, and this, and this, and this. That's how the next passage goes. Mark is blown away by what happened. He gave his life as a ransom for many and he's trying to keep writing and it's just too hard and he's rambling. But it's a fantastic story. So let's read it and learn from it. Verse 46. And they came to Jericho and he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd. Now you must know there were two Jerichos that were very close to each other. One is the one that Joshua marched around. Now we won't do it. Um, That was raised, rebuilt by Ahab, and raised again. The second one is the place where Herod built his summer palace. And so theological nitpicks like to split hairs as to which one this was, where he was going from, and where he was coming from. Point being is there's not enough data in here to tell us, but there's enough in here that we can still trust our, our Bible that it really is, okay, this is where he was going and this is where he's headed. Now, who is our character here? Dear friend Bartimaeus, A blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. Now, that's all we know about this guy. We know the guy was blind. We know he was begging. His situation was pretty bad. And the question is, is how bad is bad? Well, I think we can learn a lot just by his name to tell you how bad off the guy was. So his name is two parts, right? Bartimaeus isn't actually what was on his birth certificate, just so you know. Um, Bar, meaning son of Timaeus. So this guy, for all intents and purposes, he doesn't even really have his own name. He's just Timaeus's kid. And you can probably even think of it, given how they felt about the blind and the crippled at that time, they didn't say that with the same excitement that we would say about our kids today. It would be more like, oh, yeah, that, that's, that's Timaeus's kid. And that's our fellow here this morning. This guy is blind He's begging. I mean, the guy's got nothing. He doesn't even, for the most part, even have a name. Our fella is as bad off as he probably could possibly be. Let's hear our story. Verse 47. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. I must tell you, this blind man could see far better than any of the rest of the crowd. Son of David is clear messianic language. This fella is not calling to Jesus as teacher. He's not calling to him as rabbi. He's not calling to him as somebody who's gonna give him 20 bucks so he can get dinner. Son of David is the Messiah. This is the one that's going to put everything right. All of the fulfillment of Jewish hopes and dreams were bound up in this person, and he will not be shushed by anyone. He's going to call out all the more. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Jesus is on the march to his own death and demonstrates here the kind of service that he has just taught his disciples surely Jesus' mission and agenda are too important to talk to a blind outcast. But that is exactly and precisely what he does here and the example that he sets for us. Contrast this now with the rich young ruler. If you know that story, this guy brought all of his law and all of his good deeds and said, I'm here, I'm ready, Jesus. You can have me now. And Jesus is like, no, no, You, you need to get all of that behind you if you want to come with me and move forward. This fella here, Bartimaeus, He has little, but you see here, throwing off his cloak, that's probably all the guy had. The guy probably had no more than a cloak, but he ditches it and goes full on for Jesus. Everything gone straight away because he has nothing and he knows it, right? He's in the most clear situation. We think we have lots of stuff and we have a really hard time getting to Jesus because of all of our junk, right? He doesn't have any stuff and he knows it. He ditches it and runs straight on. It's exactly what you see in the section of the children. Those children that come running to Jesus aren't waiting and asking permission. They're coming and diving headlong at him. How? What, What a picture for us of what it looks like to run to Jesus. Verse 51, and Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? That's the question, right? That's the question a second time. The first time, the question was, I want you to give me special places of power. And what does this guy want? What what does our fellow here want? Does he he want the third? No, 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 no. He just wants to see. He wants just a basic element of life and comes running to the one who can and joyfully grants those types of requests made in faith. And that's what we see, verse 52. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This second request made in our passage today and this one gladly honored by the faith of the requester. It is unclear here if his request was for both spiritual and physical sight, but it does say that he followed Jesus afterwards. It's also unclear from other accounts if there were perhaps a second beggar there as well. But what is clear that he brings forward the two essential ingredients for faith. First, he recognizes his need. He knew he was blind, and he knew his situation was bad. Contrast that with the brothers. And second, he knew that Jesus was the only means of freedom. He knew that when the Messiah came, Isaiah 35.5 would be fulfilled. That says, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. He knew where his salvation came from. No one was going to fix his situation except for Jesus. I'd actually encourage you this week, if you, if you study the message again, read all of Isaiah 35 in this context. Unbelievably rich on our situation in the context of Jesus coming for us. So, from our passage here this morning, why did Jesus come? I hope by now you know the answer is evident. He did not come as a political ruler to seize power and restore Jewish rule. No, he was rejected by the Jews and handed over the Gentiles to be tortured and killed. He did not come to give us whatever we want. No, on the contrary, he came to serve and give us the one thing we didn't even realize we needed but needed more than anything, his life as a ransom. He did not come as merely a physical healer. This is actually the last miracle in Mark. No, he came to provide ultimate healing. Twice in our passage, he asks us, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want Jesus to do for you? Jesus is powerful. He can do anything within the will of the Father. That's actually the definition of God. If you can do anything, that pretty much makes you God. He can do anything for us. But what Jesus can do for us and what he will do for us is not his purpose. What Jesus did do, what he accomplished, why he came. Jesus came to reconcile you and me and sinners separated from God. His purpose was to once and for all put away the penalty of our sin and to open the door to freedom, to experience eternal life with him. That, that is why he came. I want to transition now to a small time of prayer. Every one of us here today is present in this passage. All of our purposes are tied up in the purpose and work of Jesus. So if you would, let's approach the throne together now. Lord, we approach you today in the name of your son, Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Lord, we confess today before you as a people that we have sinned. We have operated out of selfish motives. We have placed our value and purpose in the things that we do and the things that we achieve. God, forgive us for this. Jesus asks twice in our passage what we want him to do for us. And this morning, Lord, I pray for clean motives. I pray that our requests of you would be God honoring and pure. Lord, there are those here today who are suffering. They are terrified of what may happen to them. Lord, be their comfort in that you have gone before them and you promise to walk beside them. There are also here this morning, Lord, those who are blind, spiritually blind to you, Lord. Your self-sacrificing death is not a paid ransom. It is a confirmed judgment. Apart from you, they are rightly convicted of their sin. I pray this morning, Lord, that you would, like Bartimaeus, open their eyes. Give them, Lord, the gift of sight. Let them see the beautiful gift that your son has offered, his life, in their place for their sins. The stone that the builders rejected has at Jesus' death become the cornerstone. Separated from you, Lord, this stone will fall on them and crush them. But, Lord, give them faith. to Choose to fall upon it. Your word says they will be broken to pieces, but granted eternal life. Meet us, Lord Jesus. Be the lifters of our heads. Amen.